0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Named by The Guardian as one of our top 10 writers of rural noir, Bonnie Jo Campbell is a keen observer of life and trouble in rural America. And her working class protagonists can be at once vulnerable, wise, cruel, and funny. The strong but flawed women in the new collection, Mothers Tell Your Daughters, must negotiate a sexually charged atmosphere as they love, honor, and betray one another against the backdrop of all the men in their world. Uh, In My Dog Roscoe, a new bride becomes obsessed with the notion that her dead ex-boyfriend has returned to her in the form of a mongrel. In Bloodwork 1999, a phlebotomist's desire to give away everything to the needy awakens her own sensuality. And in Home to Die, an abused woman takes revenge on her bedridden husband. These are just some of the stories in this collection. Body Joe Campbell teaches in the Low Residency MFA Program at Pacific University. She's the author of Once Upon a River and American Salvage, among other books. That latest is finalist for the National Book Award, was finalist for the National Book Award, and National Book Critic Circle Award. She lives in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and she's coming to Salt Lake City for an appearance at the King's English Bookshop, and that is next week, Wednesday, October 28th at 7 p.m. Bonnie Jo Campbell, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah.
1: Oh, thank you, Tom. It's great to be with you.
0: Uh, you have an interesting, uh, very interesting background. Uh, you you uh, grew up on a farm, I think, there in Michigan.
1: Yep, yep, on a, just a little, kind of a small farm. A few decades ago, when you could, it was still cheaper to to raise your own critters than it was to buy food from the grocery store.
0: Your grandfather Hurley, he built it in the shape of an H. That's he must have been a <laughs> uh, interesting yeah, fellow. Yeah,
1: it's kind of funny his. Uh, he it uh he was a construction guy and uh, worked for his father and his father said he would pay for the house so long as they built it in the shape of an H so <laughs> for Hurley. <For> so <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a crazy shape for a house but uh it, it got my imagination going when I was pretty young
0: yeah uh and you've hitchhiked across the US and Canada
1: yeah you know I was a I was a poor kid. And from the beginning I decided that I wanted to travel and I wanted to have adventures and I wasn't going to let being poor stop me and so I just stuck out my thumb. Now I disapprove of that for all my nieces. They better not do that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it could be dangerous. Yeah, but uh, imagine you had some adventures.
1: Yep, yep, had some adventures and and also didn't have any really anything bad happen. So oh. it was a it was a charm time maybe.
0: Yeah, I'm glad. You've uh, you've scaled the Swiss Alps on your bicycle. You've done a lot of, of biking.
1: I am a crazy mad bicyclist. I just to me bicycling is just like flying, and I just even just today I just got in from a bike ride, and ah. I had to hurry to get back.
0: Right. <laughs> well, we're glad you did. Um, so, what, what does biking do for you?
1: It just it it just feels like flying to me. It just feels so joyful to have to be moving at that. To me, that's the perfect pace to take in the world some people like walking but i just love biking i feel like i can see everything i can observe all kinds of interesting interesting goings on and i can really get someplace mm. you know today i went to the post office and back
0: yeah you're in a beautiful part of the world as i understand it i haven't been to michigan but this is western michigan i think right
1: yep western michigan i'm from around kalamazoo and we, my bike trail goes along the Kalamazoo River, and we've got a lot of woods, and we're a little bit flat here. You got to go up north a little bit to get some hills.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you've, uh, the list goes on. You uh, you traveled with uh, Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus.
1: Yep, that was that was part of my seeking adventure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a fun thing to do, and. uh I'm afraid it took a toll on my voice, because I was one of those people who climbed up and down the stairs yelling, snow cones.
2: <laughs> you were I a... used to
1: yell, there's no cones like snow cones <laughs> at the top of my lungs. And I, I actually made a little money, too. That was nice.
0: Oh, oh, good, good.
1: I got to live on the circus train.
0: Yeah. Uh, in fact, that, uh, some of these adventures appear in your, your stories. You, you have a, a story that's uh, set with the circus.
1: Yeah, I really found that, uh, you know, even as a kid, I knew I wasn't a very good writer. As a kid, because nobody is, and uh, I knew that my best bet was to go out and, and see the world and get ideas for the stories I would write later, and I, I knew that circus that circus would, was an exciting idea, you know, and an exciting idea. But then it also turned out to be a really enriching experience, and I, I got to see uh, a, a lot of people, a lot of people who work for the circus are uh, kind of from a low economic strata, and uh, I really learned about a lot of difficulties of people who had to leave home and people who, for whom, you know, for me it was just fun to join the circus, but for a lot of people it was kind of their only option when things got difficult at home.
0: Hmm. I don't know if you resonated with this, I think you you come from, you might describe yourself as, you know, working poor.
1: Yep, yep, yep. I come from come from people for whom survival is not quite guaranteed, <laughs> mm-hmm. and maybe maybe a lot of the people I knew growing up, it's it's tough economic situations, and also people making you know having to make difficult choices. And if you if you're in a higher economic strata, maybe you have more choices, and and when you make mistakes, you get bailed out. But when you come from poor people your mistakes stay with you. You know, let's say it's some legal issue, you may not be able to get a lawyer who can get get you off, you know, scot free. You might end up actually going to jail. So it, you know, the different people in different economic strata have a different experience of living in America.
0: And, and so is it, I don't know, more about survival is the concern? What's what's the big concern then? I do
1: tend to I do tend to write about situations where um, survival is, is at least an element of the situation, and that was very much true in my earlier collection, um, American Salvage, because those were mostly stories about really addressing head-on economic situations of, of, of especially men who were having difficulty making the transition from the old, the old world in Michigan, which was. Working in a factory or a car company and having a job for life and just working hard, and then now having to be really creative and make it in the in the information age. But for the women, I saw the problem as a little bit a little bit different. Um, women make make some of those economic decisions a little more easily, or, or let's say they're a little more fluid with taking the new job, even though it doesn't. Seem like it's as good as the old job, but um, what I saw is that the women were suff- the the women are having difficulty across the generations. Maybe mothers dealing with daughters, and even with grandmothers. And I was really interested in what what sorts of what sorts of what sort of dynamic was was taking taking hold of of their lives.
0: And uh, speaking as a man, I, I sometimes. <laughs> I view those women-to-women relationships, especially mother-daughter, it's, it's kind of mysterious to me. It's, it's, it's often very intense uh, but, but very close and in a way that, uh, at least I see, I don't, you know, don't get with fathers and sons.
1: Yeah, it really is kind of different. It's something to do with actually maybe having this ability to create life and then doing it and then, and then creating someone who can create life. Um, I, I, I do, um, I appreciate your reading the book. I have had a few, a few men say that they, you know, that this, this was kind of new to, kind of new to them, that they hadn't taken the time to think about it. Um, but, the, the difficulties often are from an, an older generation that, uh, where the women just had to be so darn tough, the women had to be so strong and, and, You know, I'm very interested in the kind of farm women who had to be so strong to hold the family together that maybe they never got to express their softer side or their gentler side. And so women now have a different version of, let's say, feminism. You know, women now can demand equal rights. But then, you know, in the older generations, women had to just work twice as hard and try to demand those rights, try to... to, uh, you know earn those rights in a in a in a way that you know if we think about Peggy Lee that Peggy Lee song we're going to bring home the bacon and fry it up in a pan and <laughs> never let you forget you're a man <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah uh, so what do you think that did for or to those women That's you know having to yeah those farm
1: women were so tough and they never you know i mean those were women who had to Drown kittens, you know, on the farm, and you know it's you're hard pressed to find anybody who's willing to drown kittens nowadays.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I don't want
1: to do it. Yeah, um, definitely. But those those women had to um, maybe not show so much sympathy for the troubles around them because everybody had to everybody had to be strong and gather together and get the work done. Hmm. And now um, you know those while those you know I. Sometimes I I think that America we we think of America from the movies as being built by uh, by you know men uh, men on horses you know cowboys on horses but I'm convinced that America was built by by uh, tough women and mules
2: yeah. <laughs> and mules <laughs> you know we ne- we needed mules to yeah.
1: to, to uh, you know break up the soil that yeah. from which we built the great farms and right. ranches. And we needed, we needed tough women to hold families together while, while everyone was struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: parenthetically, you, you have donkeys.
1: I do. I love my donkeys. And I spoil them terribly.
0: <laughs> what, what is it about donkeys? You could have horses, I guess, or mules or you know, whatever. Yeah,
1: isn't that, well, you know, I would like to have mules, but mules are getting to be kind of a thing of the past. You know, you need to have a, you can't get a mule from another mule, you know. You've got to have a, a breeding operation and I'm, my mom was kind of a horse trader when we were growing up. She, uh, she was a divorced mother of five, and uh, there were always more than five children around, because we had neighbors and cousins uh, hanging out with us, and she had to feed us all, and she, she did everything she could, which included milking a cow and keeping chickens, and, uh, and she did these horse trades, and She would always end up getting a donkey thrown in on the trade somehow. Mm, (laughs) You know, these donkeys would just show up. And uh, so we always had donkeys around. And I guess I felt, I feel a kinship with donkeys because they are the beast of burden of the world. And the opportunity to treat a donkey well, for me, is just a glorious thing. Tell me I don't, what, I don't have to be one of those tough women.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: because of in part the women that came before, I guess.
1: That is right, absolutely.
0: Tell me a bit about and, more about your mother. Uh, I've, I've read a couple yeah, of interviews. Yeah, she's music. a
1: really interesting person and she did me a great favor as as a as a girl, as a you know, looking back, it's clear I was meant to be a writer, but at the, you know, I did a lot of other things first before I figured out that I could be a writer. But she was a strong personality who really you know a, a, a strong woman who she actually was not one of these women born into the farm life. She was born a city girl. And she decided at an early age she wanted to be a farmer and she did everything in her power to become a farmer, which is kind of a nowadays people do this, but it was in her time it was kind of crazy. As a kid, she befriended the farmers from the the areas around, and she learned to be the one who helped deliver the difficult calves you know my my mom as a young woman had her had her arms up to her up to her shoulders inside cows yanking yanking cows you know the farmers are always looking for someone with slender arms you know
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh she just really decided to 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 make her life the way she wanted it. And I think as fiction writers, we want that in our characters. We want our characters to have strong desires and to act on them. And that's often how fiction works. And so it was really... And But not everybody in life does that. A lot of us are wishy-washy. We want this and that, and we hold two opinions simultaneously, as we're taught to in college. But um, to know someone really had these strong desires and made her life the way she wanted it is uh, kind of a nice a nice thing for me to have observed as a young person
0: why do you think she why do you think she wanted to become a farmer uh, you, you know those of us who've been on the farm uh, know that's it's, it's it can be a hard life
1: yeah isn't that interesting she just that was where she felt she be- she belonged she'd always been a she can you know basically sold her soul to her parents to get a horse when she was a little kid. And then once she had that horse, she was just unstoppable and, you know, roamed around and found the, you know, found the farmers and found ways to become involved in the farm life. Um, maybe that, you know, I, everybody who has a life with animals, and I, I think we feel this even with our own pets, um, that we just can't imagine living without them. And living with livestock, I I don't know if I can live without livestock. Um, I don't know if I can live without big animals that take up space and have personality, and 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 even have work to do to some degree. And just knowing creatures who are not human beings is a joy. And I, I think you'll find that with cat and dog owners that that being a part of a life beyond. Humanity it is an important thing for a lot of us.
0: Let's take a break. When we come back, I'll, I'll ask Bonnie Jo Campbell to, to select something, read something from her collection. It's called Mothers Tell Your Daughters, a latest uh, story collection from uh, Bonnie Jo Campbell. Uh, Bonnie Jo Campbell is coming to uh, Utah. She'll be in Salt Lake City on Wednesday the 28th, uh, so a week from tomorrow, 7 p.m. at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City doing a reading and, and signing of, uh, of her book. Um, and uh, when we come back, I'll ask my Joe Campbell to read a bit from the book, and I also want to talk about uh, these important issues that uh, is kind of hard to read. But uh, a lot of these characters are uh, are sexually assaulted. There's uh, the, they deal with the issue of, of rape and this, and, and all the various nuanced forms of uh, of uh, sexual molestation. And uh, we the statistics tell us that an alarming percentage of women, at least a quarter of women, will be raped in their lifetimes in this country. We'll talk a bit about that. Talk about some of the funny passages in the book as well. More following the break.
1: As part of Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune's Utah Public Insight Project, we are asking you to share your thoughts about fee increases at some of Utah's national parks, monuments, and historic sites. Will paying more make you want to visit less? or do you feel a fee increase is necessary? How much are you willing to pay to party in our parks? Become a UPIN source. Go to upr.org.
0: You know how people love to hate the Federal Reserve right now? Let me tell you, that is nothing compared to when the Fed was founded. The people who wanted to create the Federal Reserve couldn't even admit that that's what they were doing. They went off on Fake hunting trips to disguise their purpose—it was just, you know, anathema to the body politic. Then I'm Kai Rizdal. The Fed's origin story next time on Marketplace from APN. Join us tonight at 6:30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is writer Bonnie Jo Campbell. Her latest book is a collection of stories called Mothers Tell Your Daughters. And uh, she's coming to Utah. She will be uh, in Salt Lake City at the King's English Bookshop on Wednesday, October 28th, 7 p.m., doing reading and signing. Uh, She teaches in the Low Residency MFA program at Pacific University. She's the author previously of Once Upon a River and American Salvage. That one was finalist for the National Book Award and National Book Critics Circle Award. She lives in uh, Kalamazoo, uh, Michigan. Um, so I want to uh, treat this topic. It's a very, of course, a very serious topic, um, and uh, several stories deal with this. I'm talking about uh, sexual assault and various, uh, you know, it's various forms. Uh, uh, the the um, The story, Tell Yourself, traces the ever more frantic thoughts of a mother who drives herself crazy over the possibilities for her pubescent daughter to be sexualized by men. So there's a worry about all forms here. Uh, To you as a woman, a patient in hospital waiting room relives a brutal assault and wonders as a mother and sister about the mothers and sisters of her assailants. Um, There's another story where a wife sits at her abusive husband's deathbed as he dies uh, slowly. Realizes that she's now perhaps independent. Well, uh, where do you think this uh, comes from? This uh, you, you know, several of your characters have to deal with this.
1: Yeah, um, you know, it's funny. I kind of put off writing stories about this subject because I, I didn't know how how to do it. Um, in fiction, I don't want to. I don't want to write about victims. Um, I don't. I don't want to write about people being victimized as the main core of the story. But I do want to explore these troubles and difficulties that people have so that, that women often have and some, and some men as well. Um, so I, I wanted to take on these issues to, to write about what things really happen in certain people's lives, but then to focus on how people move through them and beyond them. So I'm I'm very as a fiction writer I'm very interested in in trouble of all kinds. Um, sometimes people wonder, you know, why 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 do you write about such difficult subjects? And my answer is that I write about them because they're difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, if they were simple and if the problems were simple to solve, if we could just stop these various forms of molestation from happening, we, we wouldn't really have to write about them and explore them. But um, I, wanted, I wanted my readers to hear some of the kinds of voices that are out there that, that haven't been heard from. A lot of women who suffer these sort of nuanced forms of molestation, aren't they're still not comfortable speaking up, and, and with good reason.
0: Uh, so so you think the voices of your characters perhaps can help in a way?
2: Stand in for this these they women? Can.
1: Mm-hmm. Um I mean, it comes down to the question of why we read, what, why should we read fiction at all? Um, why should we read literature at all? And it's because um, in literature we can create uh, situations that are a little more, a little hotter than in real life, and a little more complicated, and a little... A little more urgent, and we we read about them, and then we can identify um, with our own situations, with our own with our own troubles, and we can see in our own lives an, an echo of these these more dramatic troubles that we read about.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. we
1: have adventures in literature so that we don't have to have them in in real life to mm-hmm. some degree. Um, but I think um, you know you know. A lot of women have situations that made them uncomfortable that they they can then project onto maybe what what is the the larger problem that their own problems feel like a part of.
0: And I'm reading a, an, another interview you gave. You, you talk about how this this problem, you know, sexual molestation, is has become more nuanced. In other words, we see, um, you know, we used to see rape as with strangers. Now we understand that it's, you know, the majority of the time, in fact, it's it's within the family. And
1: yeah, it's really, you know, yeah, One, I think there was a time when people saw rape as, you know, just this strange, violent act that, that occurred out in the world and had nothing to do with them. And gradually, you know, and, and maybe, let's say, during the time of those old farm women I mentioned, um, nobody wanted to bring a rape to the fore, it was just too much trouble, and so especially these um, things that happen in families, you couldn't afford to lose. You know, maybe maybe a brother or an uncle should be prosecuted and sent to jail, but it wasn't practical. And not only that, but the legal the legal system was a little more a little more challenging then. But I, I think now we're willing to talk about it. I mean, it sounds kind of corny, but communication is the key. To all of this, um, finding ways to communicate what ha- what what has happened gives us a way of move gives women a way of moving forward and out of the trouble that they feel haunted by. Many women and and some men. I've spoken with some men who have read the book and confessed um, things to me uh, that have happened and. I see the I see the the difficulty of moving through it as I see it as as often the inability to talk about it or communicate about it in any way.
0: And and then we have the you know the modern problem of you know sometimes a woman passes out or gets drugged and you don't you don't know exactly what happened.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right and and you know I those situations are horrible for everyone. You know the 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 young men who who just act out of instinct or whatever they're not bad guys they're not they're not villains it's just these situations are are bigger and more complicated than we're we're prepared to deal with <laughs> than than we are psychologically prepared or psychologically built to handle I mean the you know the animal kingdom is filled with rape and molestation. And, and that's just the way it is. And we want to rise above it. We don't want to be, we don't want to be forced to live, you know, in an, in an, a situation where instinct rules, but everybody has to be thoughtful and communicative about it. So I, my job is not a sociologist, you know, so mm-hmm. I'm really interested yeah. in just exploring what happens to characters, what right. happens to people who have Troubling experiences. I am just interested in those individuals, and and my individuals may react differently than than other people in the world. But I do hope that they provide a touchstone for readers.
0: And you have you'd said before. I wonder if you'd expand on this. You don't want those characters to be victims. You want them to be more than that.
1: Yeah. Well, it's funny that there's a lot of we we do want to hear about victims in the news. We want to know what crimes are committed. We want to know. Who is suffering in real life? But um, fiction that really focuses on people as victims is not interesting. And it goes back to that. We don't even know why it's not interesting. And, and those of us who are in writing workshops, we often encounter stories from new writers that are mostly, in a, in a perverse way, celebrating victimhood, if we can say that indulging a situation with rich language and writing about it carefully is a is a kind of celebration but we want what we want is to see characters with desires dealing with difficult situations and so even though my my work takes on difficult situations i feel that i'm creating paths through which my characters can move Forward and make their lives make more sense and make sense of whatever difficulties they've gone through.
0: We just joined us. We're talking with Bonnie Jo Campbell. Her uh, latest is a collection of stories called Mothers Tell Your Daughters. And uh, Bonnie Jo Campbell will be in Salt Lake City on October 28th. That's a Wednesday, uh, Wednesday of next week. And uh, she'll be at the King's English Bookshop for reading and signing at 7 p.m. That is, of course, open to the, to the public. Uh, Bonnie Jo Campbell, I wonder if you, do you have a passage from the a book you'd like to read us
1: well you know what would be fun uh is to read the very first story which is a one-page story would that be all right yeah,
0: that'd be fine this is one of the uh, what you call these flash uh,
1: yeah some people call them flash fiction flash fiction some okay people yeah. people call them short short stories uh this one's actually a short 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 story right. you know okay so this is called sleepover Ed and I were making out by candlelight on the couch. Pammy was in my bedroom with Ed's brother. She wanted to be in the dark because her face was broke out. We were wishing your head could be on Pammy's body, Ed said. You two together would make the perfect girl. I took it as a compliment. Unlike Pammy, I was flat-chested. Ed kissed my mouth, my throat, my collarbone. He pressed his pelvis into mine. The full moon over the driveway reminded me of a single headlamp or a giant eyeball. Ed's tongue was in my ear when mom's car lights hit the picture window. Ed slid to the floor and whistled for his brother, who crawled from the bedroom on hands and knees. They scurried out the screen door into the backyard, and hopped the fence. Pammy and I fixed our clothes and hurriedly dealt a hand of Michigan rummy by candlelight. You girls are going to ruin your eyes, Mom said, switching on the table lamp. When Mom went to change her clothes, Pammy whispered that she'd let Ed's brother go into her pants. Her hair was messed up, so I smoothed it behind her ear. Too bad this show isn't in color, Pammy said later, when we were watching Frankenstein. While the doctor was still cobbling together body parts, Pammy fell asleep with her small, pretty feet on my lap. I stayed awake, though, and saw the men from the town band together to kill the monster.
0: That's a Sleepover. That's the first uh, story from uh, Mothers Tell tell Your Daughters. Uh, one of the things I thought when I read that was uh, what parents don't know. That's one. Yeah. <laughs> right. I and, know.
1: I, it's fun to see, see the mother who's, like, worried about the, her, da- her daughter's eyes, you know, and we, kn- we know there's more trouble to worry about than that.
0: Yeah, and sometimes the parents never know. Sometimes years later, you know, there's confession, but... Uh, um, there's And there's, you know, there's sexual politics. Uh, I, I got to kick out of there. There's some dark humor in uh, Daughters of the Animal Kingdom. <laughs> um, it, it's that a, was
1: fun to write. The, the, it was fun to do research to figure out. You know, we use nature for metaphors, and so it was fun to look for kind of, uh, shall we say, romantic metaphors in the animal kingdom.
0: <laughs> yes. The, and the narrator here is pregnant. Uh, and her daughter's pregnant as well. Yep. And so she. <laughs> and and so a, uh
1: Yeah, it's a woman who's a little bit on the older side uh, who did not expect to get pregnant at her advanced age. So it's all kind of kind of a surprise, and as well as her daughter's pregnancy being kind of a surprise.
0: Yeah, that's kind of one. Of, I don't know if it happens as much anymore, but that's kind of one of those uh, stereotypes of the uh, you know Mormon communities. Uh, here in Utah, the the mom and the daughter are pregnant at the same time, is you know, it? because okay. because, of, because of the large families. Yeah,
2: I, I yeah, think...
1: yeah. It happens here a bit, a bit. Not as not as much now. Not as much in the uh, now that we're away from you know in the in the farming era. I think it
2: happened a little bit more.
0: Yeah, and I think including in LDS communities, uh, the the families are getting smaller as well. But uh, I just wanted to read this. Uh, Your, um, so the the narrator is uh, she's talking with her daughter. But she goes on to say, it's not just black widow spiders that kill their mates. The female praying mantis often bites off the head of the fellow who has just impregnated her. And some snails, too, get so furious they lash out, albeit slowly. <laughs> the, I, those last two I didn't
2: know.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I got my favorite research in, for that story was to learn about the love dart. Uh, the love so dart? The, the love dart is something that certain snails and slugs have, uh or shall I say, semi-slugs, which are halfway between snails and slugs. They have a uh, a dart, uh, and this is complicated because these these snails and slugs are all often hermaphroditic, so it's not clear whether they're male or female. But they will shoot; they'll shoot a dart made of uh, calcium or, or cartilage, and it will go into the object of their desire and pin that object to the ground so that the slug can then catch up and do his or her business. And it just seems like just the wickedest thing in the world.
2: Yeah, <laughs> That you would yeah, shoot
1: a dart into somebody and Perfect. then take advantage of them.
0: And then, and then to th- think of these as metaphors, you know, not, not exact <laughs> metaphors, but metaphors for human interaction which, you, you know, you, you you do a bit in, in that story. Um, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about the, the, the humor. You know, sometimes dark. I'm thinking of another story. This one's set in the circus, um, where, where there's regular Mike, I think, what, spaghetti Mike, and then black Mike.
1: Yeah. Yeah, in the circus, it was a, a funny thing I observed was that nobody could have the same name because you were such a small community of people and uh, maybe a couple hundred people, and... Everyone needed, when necessary, to be able to shout at you and make you do something. So I noticed that nobody, nobody shared the same name. So the first person named Mike who showed up got to be Mike. And then the next guy who showed up ended up being Spaghetti Mike because he had ordered spaghetti a few times. And you know how wicked nicknames can be, and you can't shake them one, necessarily once you've got them. And so Mike was African-American, when he the third Mike, who's the subject of the story. And so he has to live with the sort of unfortunate moniker Black Mike. And he doesn't seem to mind it, but his girlfriend, who's white, uh, is very much bothered by it.
0: Yeah, why, why it couldn't, couldn't you be Mikey or Mickey or, yeah. Why couldn't you select a different name, she says. You know, why do you have to be Black Mike?
1: Yeah, because if he had just told them, if he had just told them a different name, you know, give a, even if he'd said Michael, he probably could have been Michael, mm-hmm. but he had just said his name was Mike. And this is how, I think this is how, you know, nicknames come about is we're not planning, we're not planning on being named and then somebody names us.
0: Yeah, and then it sticks forever. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: yes, that's right. Yeah. I but think I-
1: many of us. Many of us who are members of family suffer from this
0: yeah it's true it's true uh, I wonder about the humor. do you purposely put humor in to, to kind of leaven the story or does it just come out
1: well I'll tell you when you when you when you're in a, a life whether in a life of trouble whether it's just poverty or whether it's you know being being in a prisoner of war camp um, you you won't survive without humor Um, people people who live in the most difficult situations tend to be the people people who survive those situations tend to be the people who can find some kind of joy or laughter or something in in their lives no matter how no matter how troubling and i think just being if you don't have a sense of humor about being poor in america then you're a victim and uh, I think most of the people I know who are poor don't want to be victims. And so they are willing to look at their lives with a, with a sense of humor. And I, I think it's just how we're built, most of us. Um, we, we look around us. We struggle as much as we can. And then we, when we have a chance to sit down, we try to take things a little more lightly than, than while we're struggling I, I just think it's the it's the nature of the human the the human being to to find some kind of lightness somewhere. Well,
0: let's take another break. When we come back, more with Bonnie Jo Campbell. Uh, the collection of stories is called "Mothers Tell Your Daughters." It's uh, just out, and uh, Bonnie Jo Campbell is coming to Utah. She'll be in Salt Lake City at the King's English Bookshop for a reading and signing at seven p.m. on Wednesday, October twenty-eighth. Uh, here's another quote from another interview I read. To some degree, Bonnie Jo Campbell says, My characters reflect their landscape. I want to talk a bit about that and uh, maybe have her read uh, another passage from the book. More following the break.
1: This is Wendy Hassan for State of the Arts. Some call it the silver tsunami or the graying of America. Twenty percent of Americans are projected to be 65 or older by 2030. And Utah is a pilot state in a national movement promoting creative aging. According to the National Center for Creative Aging, Utah Arts and Museums, and Engage Utah, all individuals can flourish across their lifespan through creative expression. Research on older individuals learning to play the violin helped change decades-old assumptions about the brain's ability to form new neurons later in life, and studies have found therapeutic connections between music and memory that benefit individuals
0: suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia.
2: State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, featuring the New Horizons Orchestra for adult musicians of all skill levels.
0: Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. My guest for the hour is Bonnie Jo Campbell, author uh, previously of uh, Once Upon a River, and American Salvage. That book was finalist for the National Book Award. Uh, Current book is Mothers Tell Your Daughters. It's a collection of stories. Bonnie Jo Campbell uh, teaches in the low residency MFA program at Pacific University. She lives in Kalamazoo, Michigan and uh, she's coming to Utah for a reading and signing at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. That's on Wednesday, October 28th, 7 p.m., free and open to the public, of course. Uh, So this uh, this quote from a previous interview, to some degree you say, my characters reflect their landscape. Uh, I wondered about that. What do you you mean by that?
1: I know. It's it's one of those mysteries of uh, fiction writing um, is that, we, the, char- the, char- the setting, you know, we, we teach, as fiction writing teachers, we're always talking about how the setting, we have to be really clear about what the setting is, and we have to give the right amount of details. And somehow, magically, the character in the story um, has to find him or herself in the exact right place in order to make the story work. And the... I tend to write about Michigan landscapes because that's what I know the best. And I find that as I'm writing about a character, I can so easily just reach in and pluck from the landscape because I know it so well. I can pluck a detail that I need. Um, And so I don't exactly know how it works. A lot of it we do subconsciously as writers. We are, you know, in the Daughters of the Animal Kingdom, you know, she goes in the chicken house and sees what she needs to see in the chicken house to make the story work and you know we we don't quite know how this how this magic works but it seems to be our seems to be part of our toolbox
0: and I think uh, as people we we are heavily influenced by by place
1: yeah I, I do believe that we can you know we we do feel feel like if If we're at all people who, um, you know, especially people who live in the countryside or people who live near the countryside, I think we do feel at home in a certain kind of landscape, and we don't feel at home elsewhere. Or, or it's a big deal when we go elsewhere. And you'll meet a lot of people, you know, who come from kind of lush places like Michigan and then they move to the desert, and their life changes radically. It's not that they don't love the desert as well, but it's just they very likely are living a different life there in the there in the desert. It's a very fundamentally different life.
0: Yeah, and I think it affects culture as well. I, I'm reminded um, many years ago I lived in Argentina for a couple of years. Coming back, I was struck by the space that Americans take up, you know, it was (laughs) the first couple of hours. I was a little offended. You're you're taking up so much space. You're swinging your arms, you know, control, control yourself. Uh, Then of course I slipped back into that. And I think, you know, wide open spaces. I don't know what, what produces that, but.
1: Yeah. Isn't that funny? And I think you can say that, especially about the Western. I teach with a lot of, uh, you know, I'm a Midwestern writer, but I teach with a lot of Western writers and I just love reading, I love reading their works um, because I feel the space, I feel the landscape, I feel the horizon all the time, and it's just such a, you know, it's such, such a different feeling than, say, somebody who's writing about, about New York
2: City.
0: Uh, here's another quote. Do you say, I think all readers and writers are aware of the mystery of place, that we access the universal truths only by focusing intensely on the particular I, you know I think we all intuitively know that that's true, but it is a bit of a mystery.
1: It is very mysterious how that works. Um, we don't quite know. um you know if 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 we write honestly and absolutely with true devotion to a particular situation, then that situation seems to affect people who it seems very close and and important to people who are in very different situations um if i get i you know i get fan mail from west virginia and people write to me and say you got it just right and i'm thinking you know this is strange because i've never been to west virginia but um it's something so it's it's about process with the writing as much as it is about what what you know, place or landscape you're getting. It's about that devotion to getting it right that seems to be important. And it's it's funny. I write about. Um, I often start a story by writing about real people, and then I end up changing it so much that the people never recognize themselves. Um, it's just sort of I need the real life as a jumping off point. And yet I will have people tell me that they're sure that a story is about themselves. When it's really not, so I feel like I—it's—it's it's been a win-win situation so far.
0: Yeah, and I, I guess that's—you know—it is a compliment. You've—you've you've nailed it if they—if they find themselves in it. Um, I wonder um, if you tell me about and this. This goes back to place as well, in, in different cultures. And uh, you uh, used to lead bike tours, didn't you, in in, uh, in Europe? I don't know if you still yeah, do. Yeah,
1: I—I really. Uh, I, as as you know, I'm a big bicyclist, and I had an opportunity at a young age to to lead lead bicycle tours um, in Eastern Europe, which was back then we called it behind the Iron Curtain, and it was just a uh, you know a, a lucky thing something I lucked into. I was always look as I mentioned, I was always looking for adventure and opportunity, and so I led these there we call them self-contained tours because we have to carry everything on our bicycles we don't have a a sag wagon so we had very independent-minded people a whole group of us americans traveling across places like romania and bulgaria and poland and um what was then czechoslovakia since divided up into a couple countries and i I still long for those days of really being a true traveler, just having it be my job to to bicycle 60 miles a day and to see all kinds of things.
0: And so you get to see yourself as a, an outsider, a foreigner, right? You get to see yourself through those you know the people's eyes.
1: Yeah, you get to see yourself as a foreigner and then you get a little distance uh maybe for the for the writer it was really important to get this distance from my home place mm-hmm. you know to see lands that are really different and that helps that helps uh both of those things help develop develop uh, an eye for for char- for seeing characters from the outside and for seeing landscapes from the outside
0: yeah i was just going to ask you how to, how that informs your writing when you come back i guess a fresh eyes would be
1: yeah, I just think it's all you know. The 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 more you can see as a writer, the better. But then there's the new problem, which is the reason I do not run bicycle tours anymore, is that it really was a full-time job bicycling, and it it didn't allow me to write. I could I could do some of that work in my head, and even now on the bicycle, I do a little bit of writing in my head. But I'm really an observer when I'm on the bicycle, and. You know, to be in a situation where I am biking ten, you know, eight or ten hours a day is so joyful. But I, I feel that I, I don't get the time for my kind of reflection, um, which is involved with the writing. Mm. I think for a lot of people, the reflection of just moving, moving events and people around in their heads is good, is good enough, and that's good reflection. Uh, but for me, I need to have that experience of of putting it down and moving it around on the page. I sometimes think that writers, people think that we writers are you know, storytellers or something like that. Um, I think we're the people who have to put it down. The, the work that we need to do, we need to do on paper or on a computer screen. We, we can't seem to be satisfied with just telling ourselves stories in our head and then sh- sharing them verbally. And and I have a terrible memory, so I sometimes think that's why I have to be a fiction writer, yeah, so I can right. just make things up.
0: Right. <laughs> uh, I wonder. We just have a couple minutes left. I'd love to hear another passage from the from the book.
1: Um, well, I could read the other one of the other very short stories. Okay. Um, that's maybe a little bit of difficu- It's a little bit of difficult material, um, unless you had a preference.
0: Um, I was uh, actually. Um Love to hear a little bit from the fruit of the pawpaw tree, if that's oh, is that? okay.
1: That would be nice. That's a a little. That's a story that has very a lot to do with place. Yeah. And a lot to do with strong character. And if there is any character that is my mother in this book, it's you know, it's got it. It's got to be her. I, I wonder about that. I even named yep. I named the character after her, just just so she she wouldn't uh, wouldn't you know w- wouldn't feel like she was uh, left out. Okay. Okay, so this is called The Fruit of the Pawpaw Tree, and maybe I'll just read two paragraphs. Yeah, that'd be great. Susanna O'Leary had long tended the biggest garden in Pottawatomie, Michigan, and she planned to keep on one way or another, even if she had to do it without the Ford tractor. The tractor had given 45 years of faithful service, but the unholy heat had plain worn out the old engine. This summer's heat and drought were also causing the pumpkins to ripen early. And when you hefted one of these big fruits by the stem, you found it almost as light as a gourd. The cucumbers and zucchini were shriveling, and the tomatoes clinging to scorched vines were small and strong flavored. Susanna spent summers in her garden and barnyard, and during the school year worked as a junior high school cafeteria lady which meant that in a week and a half she'd be hellaciously busy with feeding lunch to 200 kids and then coming home to can tomatoes and freeze beans. But there was no law saying a woman couldn't work hard. The heat had settled into the walls and the floors of Susanna's rambling one-story house and had taken its toll on the occupants, rendering everyone as slow-moving as snakes. Three of Susanna's grandchildren ages four, five, and seven, who lived in her house, spent a lot of time lying in the shallow creek, letting the current run over them, while their ma worked as a receptionist in a cool dentist's office a few miles away.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that gets us into the, the character of uh, Susanna. Some of that, uh, you know, I think, based on your mother. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, it sounds like an indomitable uh, person.
1: Yes, yes, she's, a, she's an interesting, well, you know, she's getting a little frail, so I have to, I have to uh, prop her up a little bit and remind her how, how great and fabulous she is, but uh, she's, she's hanging in there for us.
0: I wonder if we'd talk just a couple minutes here about the, the title story. Uh, this is a woman hospitalized from a stroke. She's lost the ability to speak, but her interior thoughts convey uh, her life lessons to her, to her daughter.
1: Yeah, the, this was a story that was impossible to write, so I had to try.
0: <laughs> that, that was your goal? I mean, <laughs> well,
1: you know, whenever, the minute I think something is impossible or even untenable, I think I, it's, I have to try it. Um, it's, a, it's a story that works as a monologue told inside a woman's head, because she's, she's dying of, of uh, cancer and she's um, had a stroke. She she got up out of her bed, out of her hospice bed, and she's had a stroke. And so this is a woman who was able to uh, verbally, maybe verbally, control her world. You know, by the force of her will, she could not only boss the people around her around, but also define her world by the way she described it. And, you know, that's something we writers aspire to do. You know, to some degree, we're... uh, Taking on, we're we're dominating our world by being able to to give it give it a language, and so she now cannot speak. Maybe it says she can maybe spit out a word an hour, um, and so she's trying to talk to her daughter in her own head, and she's trying to make sense of her life, and also of of an incident that happened when her daughter was was a young woman. Mm-hmm
2: and it
0: occurred to me that and you you talk about this elsewhere as well that uh, some of these stories you're talking about are describing the space between people you know physical space between people rural areas there's physical space that communication uh, gap as well that sometimes happens and and a lot of times we're trying to narrow that space
1: yeah i like that i like that i think about um, that's one thing in in my writing is that it's very important that there is physical space um, for my characters and and i think those of us who grew up in the country or maybe anyone who grows up in the western united states feels the desperate need to have that that space and so i give that to my characters my characters they don't have to live in the house they can go out into tree forts they can go into barns they can walk long distances without encountering anyone but um, there's also then a kind of loneliness that sometimes settles in, and it's a kind of loneliness that can't be remedied by, you know, if, if you're in New York City, you hear the, the people in the apartment next door rattling their pots and pans, whereas my characters can be truly alone. And, and they must, my characters must rely on their own resources to make their lives make sense. And I think that's a commonality that you'll see through the through all of the stories.
2: Yeah,
0: that thing definitely resonates, as you say, with uh, with you know a lot of the West. Uh, Buddy Joe Campbell becoming West. Uh, she'll be in uh, Salt Lake City on Wednesday, October twenty eighth, at the King's English Bookshop, seven p.m. for that reading and signing, free and open to the public. The latest collection is a collection of stories, "Mothers Tell Your Daughters." Buddy Joe Campbell, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Oh, it was so much fun to talk to you. What a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much. Um, uh, coming up tomorrow, we're going to be talking about a uh, place. We're talking about the desert. And there's a big panel coming up, including Stephen Trimble and Janet Richmond and others, called Facets of the Desert. That's the program tomorrow. Thanks for joining me today. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Access Utah Today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University.